Hey, everybody, welcome to our Friday research review. As I just mentioned off camera, this is going to be a lot different than we do typically, but consider it more of an introduction to the topic that we're going to be in for a few weeks. And uh, with one of our coaches I was talking to um, when I announced this topic, she said, wow, I love this kind of behavioral stuff. It's, it's great. And I mentioned, well, in our research review library, which is approaching 90 uh, workshops like this, about half are behavioral, and so many are just intricately unique but connected to how we make decisions, how we behave, uh, the conclusions we come to, things like willpower, a, a lot that we're going to see today. It's hard to almost separate all of those things as individual units, uh, although we do, you know, to discuss them you know, as deeply as we can. But they are so, so all interconnected. And I, and I think you're going to see that really come alive today in Robert Sapolsky's work in uh, the, the whole topic of free will versus determinism or versus, uh, yeah, I guess, determinism. So let, let, me, let me first do a little bit of an introduction to him. Um, I've, I've mentioned him in the last couple of weeks, but, you know, we, we were doing a goal oriented behavior series uh, a little bit ago, but this subtitle specifically, a science, and, and he is very uh, adamant about this was a contention uh, point for their publicist and publisher, uh, the science of life without free will or a science of life without free will. We're going to get into a lot of definitions and nuances and a lot of semantics uh, about what this is. So don't get too hung up on saying I agree or disagree with, with any premise point. Obviously, at first glance, if I were to take a poll, I, I could poll all 8 billion people on the planet and say, do you think you have free will or is there such a thing as determinism? I guarantee 99.9% .9 of people would say I have free will because we feel like we have free will. I have decisions. I make decisions every minute of every day. So it's not that that we're really going to talk about. It's how those things are layered in our behavior, in our decision-making processes. And, and a lot of that you're going to see come to life through uh, Sapolsky's own words here. But if you have not heard of this guy, you know, first of all, he has a degree in biological anthropology from Harvard, a PhD in neuroendocrinology, uh, every single kind of, of award you can win from the MacArthur Genius uh, Award, MacArthur Fellowship, Alfred P. Sloan Fellowship, um, you know, on down. I mean, just his, his work. Matter of fact, most college professors, and he, of course, worked at the Stanford Medical School, you know, they, they have one department. They do one thing. He has joint appointments in the departments of biology, neurology, neurological sciences, and neurosurgery. He spent 33 consecutive summers in Africa studying the same baboon troop. Uh, he is obviously involved and credited for a lot of research. Um, specifically, you know, his work has been in, because he's a neuroendocrinologist and a primatologist, in the biology of, of stress, you know, how that uh, expresses itself in nature, uh, in humans and, and other primates, uh, but just generally the biology of behavior. And, on, and this is why he's involved in the medical school, neuronal degeneration, how we can protect neurons from degradation. 
So a lot of his work is, you know, trying to find cures or prevent things like Alzheimer's and all of that. But here's what's interesting. Uh, and this is why I align so well with Dr. Sapolsky. He is a, he is a biologist first. And in any of the debates between free will and determinism, usually there's one central person who happens to be rooted in the biological sciences having to fend off philosophers because free will and behavior just nosedives directly into things like crime, punishment, reward, meritocracy, things like that. Because if, if we could just blanketly say we all are equal, we all have the same potential, we all have the same neural equipment, and yet we just make decisions and we behave and perform completely to our credit, good or bad, then it's then we have the perfect system, right? We, we, we punish criminals, we reward good people. Not that simple, especially when you look at the biology. And I mentioned that Dr. Sapolsky uh, himself in, in one of the, that, that was the whole presentation, by the way, I just showed you, that, that, that's how much, that's how much we're going to dive into his actual book. Uh, I, I mentioned that Dr. Sapolsky in one interview was literally debating a philosopher, a professor of philosophy who had written eight books on free will. And Sapolsky destroyed that guy with one sentence. I mean, opening statements, opening statements. And then when they got to interact, Sapolsky interjected one question and this guy just stood deer in headlights and had no idea what to say. I mean, that literally ended the debate because you cannot ignore biology when it comes to how we express our behavior. Uh, it's not just, you know, what we think or what we call our mind, et cetera. So anyway, let me let me jump into some of this. Uh, I'm going to I will eventually put some of this into the PowerPoint um, as we move along. But I did not want to fill an entire PowerPoint with his quotes because you see already whenever I do that, it just gets long and clunky. So I'm going to bounce around a little bit topically through some of the things that he writes here. Um, but first of all, what do I mean by free will? People define free will differently. Many focus on agency, whether a person can control their actions, act with intent. Other definitions concern whether whether or when behavior occurs. The person knows that there are alter alternatives available. Others are less concerned with what, with what you do than uh, vetoing what you want to do. So here's my take. And then he goes on to describe... Uh, the fact that free will is, as I mentioned in my post today, a, a collection of things that happen just one layer at a time. So, for example, there have been studies that show uh, if if you are hungry, matter of fact, I'm going to read one of the final studies here that you you put a bowl of M&Ms in front of somebody. I, I mentioned this in a in the last couple of weeks in our research reviews. And you add stress to that person, you put them in a context where they didn't have enough sleep, you do this, you do that, it 100% changes their behavior. So right off the bat, we know that, that we have the ability to change our behavior, but it's also based on things that we may not control. 
So we're, we're going to get into some of the, the nuts and bolts of, of all of those aspects and in, in some of the layers there. But what do I mean by determinism? It's virtually required to start any topic uh, with, with Pierre-Simon Laplace, an 18th century philosopher. Uh, he was actually a polymath because he was also uh, a mathematician, physicist, engineer, astronomer, blah, blah, blah. Um, and they talked about his um, his theory that if every particle in the universe was the same, like like you could reproduce that. Here I am standing in front of a microphone, and in some alternative universe, you put my exact body, my exact microphone, all of you guys standing here doing this, and we just replicated that that it would go, go the exact same way. There would never be any differentiation. Um, and, if, and and I don't know where you would come down on that because does that mean that I could in a parallel universe make a different decision? Uh, maybe it depends on how other things around me are going. Um, but let me, let me get into this this particular guy in, in the research that is really at the center of this. So so a researcher, I believe it was in the 80s, uh, Benjamin Libet, a neuroscientist at University of California, San Francisco, uh, in 1983, uh, published a study so provocative that at least one philosopher refers to as, as infamous. And, and what he started doing was he, he started a study before we even had functional MRIs uh, where, where even with just some rudimentary mechanical measuring uh, metrics, he was able to show that before you make a decision to do something, as you think you're making this decision, your brain already knows you made that decision. Uh, meaning that parts of the brain, the neocortex and so forth, or even the motor cortex are already showing that it happened before you can report that it happened. Now what they've done is they've gone deeper into the brain with, with fMRIs, and they have shown that just those connections that we think between intent and consciousness and movement and perception, it spreads out to more parts of the brain. Something that uh, one of the theories of consciousness, the global workspace theory, would very much confirm that, that there is so much interconnection of different parts of our brain that that perhaps there is more or less free will, depending on what side you come down on this. But let me let me let me get into some of the actual more scientific things, you know, from our perspective, especially as it comes to health and nutrition. Um, you know, one of the things that he describes is that the prefrontal cortex, so that the the most recent part of our brain evolution, it is therefore impulse control. And, and I'll give you an example that, that buttresses his arguments even a little bit more. We know when somebody is highly emotional, you, you are angry or sad or some other, some other you know, expressive parts of, of your limbic system, uh, your, your brain actually shuts down the prefrontal cortex. There is less activity or no activity. Blood is shunted away from that. And, and therefore, especially marriage and family therapists, counselors, psychologists, they would all say never make a decision when your brain is like that. Uh, Dr. John Gottman, one of the top psychologists of our time, calls that emotional flooding. And he even recommends to people, you got to go somewhere, whatever context you are in, go somewhere else for at least 30 minutes, 
shut down that stimulus and and then recollect your thoughts because biologically your brain simply isn't working the same you will not come to the same conclusions in that state consider that you did something that you may regret forever you know some kind of a crime or words you may say to somebody and then you know how many times have you heard oh my gosh i wasn't in my right mind or I wasn't in the place to make that decision. Now I regret it. Does that mean that we have free will? Does that mean we should be held responsible for that? Um, so, so just one more piece of context there for that prefrontal cortex, because later on when he gets to a chapter on actual willpower and grit and so forth, he talks about the insular cortex, which controls uh, disgust and things like that, and the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is one of the most concentrated uh, you know, deposits of neurons in our prefrontal cortex. That is where we ultimately make the most decisive, most impactful decisions, Th something that you're really debating hard about. Should I do this? Should I do that? I'm, I'm so torn. Maybe there's a moral angle to this. And the, the, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is the part of your brain where we make that decision. Guess what? 75% of people on death row have damage to that area of the prefrontal cortex, maybe from a, a fall, maybe from a concussion, playing football, you know, who knows? Um, but that is where impulse control resides. That is where ultimate impulse control resides in part of your brain organically, not your, quote, mind, not your will, but in your brain. Damage that part of your brain, you cannot make the same kind of impulse control decisions. Uh, one of his context points uh, that he really gets into is the fact that no matter how you frame free will versus determinism, you, you, it's it's like trying to explain the Big Bang. You you still get back to a point where you say, okay, well then what? You know what happened before that? What happened before that? What happened before that? And so any one of you who has a question, such as you know just any context, I've seen him in so many interviews, and and a lot of people play this gotcha game where it's okay, here this happens, and then all Doctor Sapolsky has to do is go one step previous to that and say, well, how did that person get there? So let me give you an example. Um, I, I come from a family of pretty, you know, impulsive people, a lot of addiction, a lot of obesity, a lot of poor decisions, that sort of thing. And uh, even though I had mentioned this in a previous uh, chat here, I, I want to say it again for this context. And so I always thought, wow, I, I really must have gotten lucky. Because at an early age, I was very much into, you know, health and improving myself that way. And I, I decided because of socioeconomic factors in my family, I, I didn't want this kind of life. So my perception of my way out of that would be, you know, education. And therefore, I can determine or, or have the free will, if you want to say it that way, um, to do something more um you know, just that I want to do more autonomous with my life and so forth. So even some of my own siblings have said, wow, you got lucky. You got all the good genes in the family. 
And it wasn't until recently, specifically, I think because of some of Sapolsky's interviews that I've watched, that I thought, wait a second, I've actually believed that too. And I'm still incredibly impulsive. I still have all the same characteristics of my siblings, but I just have found a way to frame them to be addicted to and impulsive about better things. I'm I'm incredibly impulsive. I make bad decisions all the time, or at least that's my inclination. At my age now, I've learned to outsource some of that stuff to other people, which is an interesting way socially that we as humans have learned to adapt with some of these constraints of our own brains. Because if I say I have this really tough decision and I'm usually very impulsive and I might make a poor decision, if I have learned to think, well, gosh, maybe, you know, this is usually where I make a bad decision. Maybe I should ask a friend. Maybe I should discuss this with my spouse. Maybe, maybe I should wait for a couple of weeks before making that decision and let myself think about it. Now, a free will person would say, see, there you go. You have the free will to make a better decision. But Sapolsky is very clear when he says determinism doesn't mean predictability. What I'm describing in my life, and I'm pretty biased, I can't even tell you if I'm being that accurate, is the fact that I have learned to change my brain through neuroplasticity as much as I can. I'm still constrained and bound by the deterministic factors that have led me there but I've done the right things to combat it as much as I can. And so, you know, that doesn't throw away determinism. That doesn't all of a sudden make us free will advocates philosophically. It actually shows the opposite. Um, so let me, let me see what else I have Mark here. Um, so one of the things he said, this is what I was just describing there is what he calls vetoing. If there is no free will, how do we actually make a counter decision? If my free, if, if my deterministic nature would say, Joe's always going to make this kind of decision, how do I make a better decision? Uh, he calls this, uh, how does the vetoing work neurobiologically? Slamming a foot on the brake involved, involved activating neurons just upstream. Uh, Libet, the researcher Benjamin Libet, who was the first one to show that that neural delay between what we think we did and what our brain already decided to do, um, it got into the the debate or a new field called the consciousness, the conscious sense of intent. So inside the brain, you have all of these thoughts, all of these opportunities or options that you could choose from, and you are sifting through that. But how you typically make those decisions, you know, we know are, are deeply carved out tracks in our neurobiology. Uh, so again, you can you can kind of tweak that and you can veto that. You can make a counter decision. But remember what I said about Sapolsky saying that it's always one step back. Well, maybe I have the ability neurobiologically to create enough space to counter that. But does that mean somebody else does? Maybe they don't have that capacity organically in their brain. Maybe I've learned to do that in the small range where my brain allows. And that, again, that would determine that even though I've made that forward progress in my own behavioral life, 
I have the capacity biologically to do that. Uh, then he says this, okay, let's, let's say that's okay. Like, like we agree on that. And he would call that compatibilism. There are, there's a whole other field of people kind of in between these two divides. And he would say, okay, now, now add alcohol to that situation. And let's see how good you are at it. Let's add sleep deprivation. Let's add generational poverty. Let's add your environmental conditioning that you were beaten as a child or this or that. And now all of a sudden you see even people with the same neural equipment or the neural capacity you had prior, and then you go through this environmental thing, that changes you. Now you deterministically still you know, don't have the exact same capacity to make those decisions. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you an example too of predictability and what I'm gonna call these ranges in between. We just had a citywide election in, in Evansville, Indiana. So, um, you know, it wasn't our congressional people, Senate, that kind of thing, that this is an off-year election. And the mayor and all the city council people, it was a Democrat Party sweep, which is pretty unlikely in our conservative city. Just a blue wave. The entire city is now Democratic. There is one council member who was run, who was unopposed. Uh, and that's the only Republican now left in our city. And a client of mine is the former city council president, and he is part of the Democrat Party. And and he was he was like angry, like, why didn't somebody get somebody in that race? Like anybody would have won. And I said, I agree. Like you could have put the name Jeffrey Dahmer with a capital D for Democrat and he would have won. Because this race was completely determined. And I say that because of all of the social things happening uh, in the last few years nationally uh, in our political ecosystem. Uh, Whichever side you're on, and full disclosure, I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat, I'm an independent. But, uh, you know, when one party, the Republican Party, is busy taking away women's rights to bodily autonomy and health care, they're taking books out of schools and banning books like fascists. Uh, they're taking away voting rights from minorities and just, you know, right after right after right, freedom after freedom after freedom being encroached upon. What do you expect? I mean, this has been going on for a couple of years now where this, this you know, blue wave is, is going across the country. And that, again, is the range I'm talking about. That is something that was going to happen. I don't care who ran in any of those positions. It was very, very likely the Democrats were going to win. Now you get down into the individual races, the individual people in their platforms and how they marketed themselves, how they communicated, how they canvassed neighborhoods and so forth. And yeah, it wasn't it's not a thousand percent predictable but the determined range was there. This was going to happen. So when you get into the biology of that, you can, you can see the, the parallels I, I hope I'm trying to express here. Um, so here, here's, here's where the rubber meets the road in that. Here, here's from a, a rare philosopher who understands some of the biology. A similar view comes from the distinguished philosopher, Robert Kane of the University of Texas. Quote, Free will, in my view, involves more than merely free of action. It concerns self-information. 
the relevant question for free will is this, how did you get to be the kind of person you are now? And so when physicist Lawrence Krauss interviewed Sapolsky and Sapolsky, you know, did about an hour of his explanation of free will versus determinism, Krauss admittedly on the interview, he said, I'm not a biologist. Like, I don't know half of the things you're telling me. He couldn't even pronounce some of these, you know, neural, you know, terms and so forth. He said, so what you're telling me is if I want different behavior and different outcomes, I have to work hard to become the person who makes that kind of different decision. And so Polsky's like, yes, yes, that's what I'm trying to say. And that is the essence of neuroplasticity. One of the things I'm going to end with, but I'll I'll preview it now, is a question to you guys. If you are somebody who has a problem binging with food, meaning you're making a decision counter to your goals, then you are probably a person who makes other decisions counter to your goals. So start working to become a person who makes better decisions aligned with all of your goals, and then the food will not be an issue. Does that make sense? Uh, if you're a person who has a problem um, j just with discipline and it, it, well, with food, let's just say food, like um, I didn't, you know, I wake up and I didn't do my food prep. And so I didn't have anything. I had to go to McDonald's. Um, I ran around and did this, did this. And then I was just starving because I didn't have the food I needed. And so I, I binged or this and this. If, if things are chaotic and frantic with your food, you're probably a person who struggles with chaoticism in other parts of your life. So become a person who addresses that and the food issues go away. One of my clients this morning has been doing some uh, auditory or music therapy, and, and it's very meditative. She goes to this auditory therapist and goes through the sound therapy type stuff. And the sound therapist is explaining to uh, my my friend and client that, you know, we're making these kind of changes in the brain and kind of like speech therapy or occupational therapy, dealing with motor neurons and all that. You know, we're making these changes. And I said, you know what? It's because she, she told me, she said, you know, I just feel so much more grounded. Like I feel more relaxed. I feel like I'm making better decisions. And I said, you know what you're also doing? You're laying down in her office twice a week and you're completely quiet. You're in a meditative, contemplative state. And no matter what you think that's doing to your brain making decisions, like your mind, your brain as an organ, the, the biochemical nature, the neurotransmitters, like you are completely changing the biology of your brain. It doesn't happen overnight. You've been doing this for a couple months now. Just think what it's going to be like in six months. You are literally changing how your brain works. And that is a big part of that intersection because I'm afraid when people see this initial setup, of a dichotomy, free will versus determinism, they think that it's just robotic. Like you can never make a different decision. It's just all biologically determined. So why even try? That's not it at all. It's understanding the groundwork and where your brain, you know, really is. Another here, here's another one that will 
add a little bit of complexity to your thought process. A stunningly clear statement of this compatibilist dualism concerns Jerry Sandusky, the Penn State football coach who was sentenced to 60 years in prison in 2012 for being a horrific serial child molester. Soon after this, a provocative CNN piece ran under the title, Do Pedophiles Deserve Sympathy? Psychologist James Cantor of the University of Toronto reviewed the, neuro the neurobiology of pedophilia. The wrong mix of genes, endocrine abnormalities in fetal life, and childhood head injury all increase the likelihood. Does this raise the possibility that a neurobiological die is cast, that some people are destined to be this way? Precisely, Cantor concludes correctly, one cannot choose to be a pedophile. Nobody chooses to do that. But here's another twist on that. One cannot choose to not be a pedophile, but one can choose to not be a child molester. So there again is how we act on that neurobiology, even if it's faulty because of injury or neurobiological chemical you know, insults and so forth. So I'm not going to get a crime and punishment and reward and all that, which is a really big part of this book. I want to talk more about the health science implications. But to that end, uh, Sapolsky would agree that those things are so prone to carry out their biological tracks that, you know, whatever channels are there, like he mentioned about Sandusky, a hundred out of a hundred people are going to be in that groove somewhere. It reminds me of uh, when we first learn that, that certain brain typing, um, you know, tests can be done. A, a researcher who studies a neuroscientist who studies serial killers he started seeing these patterns, both with MRIs, as well as even cadaver brains of serial killers. And in a certain part, I think it was of the parietal lobe, he just noticed like, wow, there's always this signature. They, they are completely divergent from normal brains, and they all fit this pattern. Everybody who has this brain type, they are serial killers. And then guess what? He did an MRI on his own brain, and he had that brain type. He's not a serial killer. He's a guy who studies serial killers. So he's still in that groove. He's still in that track. But just like you can't not have those pedophile tendencies, if that is in your brain, you still can choose to act on that or not to some degree, even if it takes outside help and, and so forth. Um, I know I'm throwing all kinds of weird stuff at you guys from politics to serial killers and pedophiles even, but uh, I'm almost finished here and then we'll chat about all this. Um, okay, so I already told you about the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Okay, let's get to this. Here's the final thing I want to talk about. I want to come back to that study with M&Ms because I, I want to put this in the context of health science. Okay, so this, this will be a little bit of a long insert here. For example, place a bowl of M&Ms in front of someone dieting. Here, have all you want. And they're trying to resist. If the person has done something frontally demanding, even some idiotically irrelevant red light, blue light task, the person snacks on more candy than usual. So just fatiguing the prefrontal cortex makes you make 
poorer decisions because that takes energy. You are fatiguing that part of your brain just like you would fatigue a muscle that you're training. So again, you automatically will start making worse decisions. You're, so put yourself in this context. You're dieting. You're working hard. You're, you've lost 10 pounds, 20 pounds. You're on your way. You get into these positions that I'm going to continue describing, and this is where you are at risk. Uh, in the words of the charming title of the paper on the subject, deplete us not into temptation, same thing in reverse. Deplete frontal cortex reserve by sitting for 15 minutes, resisting those M&Ms, and afterwards, you'll be lousy at the red light, blue light task, so even vice versa. Uh, prefrontal cortex function and self-regulation go down the tubes if you're terrified or in pain. The prefrontal cortex using up energy dealing with stress. Recall the Macbeth effect where reflecting on something unethical you did once impairs the, the frontal cognition. Uh, frontal competence even declines if it's keeping you from being distracted by something positive. Um, fatigue also depletes prefrontal cortex, just like not getting enough sleep or being physically fatigued. Uh, it's the same with hunger. Here's one study that should stop you in your tracks. The researchers studied a group of judges overseeing more than a thousand parole board decisions. What, what best predicted whether a judge granted someone parole or more jail time? How long it had been since they had eaten a meal. Appeared before the judge soon after she's had a meal and there was roughly 65% chance of parole. Appear a few hours later when they were hungry and there was close to a zero chance. So even a judge, a trained judge from 65% to zero on life and death decisions of somebody else, and the only thing that determined those factors were whether they were hungry or not. So you and I dieting, you and I trying to just make uh, aligned decisions with our health goals and so forth, it really does come down to the state of the brain because that's where we're going to make these decisions, specifically the prefrontal cortex, specifically the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And as that one philosopher said in here from Texas, how do I become the person who makes those better decisions? I'm going to, I'm going to let you guys sit. So get ready to jump in here as you guys would like, please just feel free to unmute yourself and, and jump in. I will uh, see you here in a second. I'm going to stop this screen share. Um, and I guess I should have done that the whole time ago. You guys were looking at Dr. Sapolsky, um, the whole time, but so, so some of the, some of the research that we've gone over in the past, you know, shows the recidivism, recidivism rates and how, uh, you know, some of these stats probably I need to update, but, you know, at least 50% of people who have lost weight, regain it back in the first year that climbs to 80 to 90 percent in the second year and by the end of five years after somebody has lost weight a hundred and seven percent average weight collectively meaning meaning the vast majority of people now weigh more than when they had even lost weight prior to that that's determinism that's the biology of how you, me, us, societally, us in that study group would make decisions based on the modern abundance that we might see. I don't care where you are socioeconomically, you're probably able to find cheap, low quality processed, high calorie dense foods 
Uh, and that's why, uh, you know, a lot of the lower socioeconomic classes struggle even more with obesity. Of all of the things we can control in, in even that state of life, you know, that's one of them where we can we can get shitty calories in, in amounts more than we need. And so we then are back to just simply being a slave to the biology of our brains, how our brains are going to execute those decisions. Unless we have created a brain, recreated a brain that makes different decisions. And then, of course, we get into values and the other parts of our brain. By the way, in Dr. Sapolsky's uh, acknowledgments, let me get in here. I want to make sure. I think it's Josh Green. I noticed in an, an entire page or page and a half of people that he thanked, uh, one of them was Dr. Green from the moral department of psych or the, the moral psychology department at Harvard, uh, where we did a, an entire series on his work of values and how the best predictor of decisions we make when faced with, are we going to do what we intend to do or not? Or are we going to make decisions aligned with the values we say we have? It comes from an emotional reaction where the limbic system deep inside of our brain lights up when the prefrontal cortex, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex does not. So if you want to be somebody who makes the best decisions more frequently, it's, it's part of rewiring your brain so that it's no longer even a contemplative point of decision. It's just who you are at your core. Um, and, and that... That would be very synonymous what Sapolsky is saying here. Determinism doesn't give us 100% predictability. It just points us in that direction. And the vast majority of outcomes are going to follow exactly through that determined biology. All right, guys, that was our introduction to this topic. And now in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to really go into and probably resynthesize some of the material we've already worked on but how we really do this now, like how do I get to become that person who can make those decisions as I want with consistency? But uh, thoughts and questions, please, please jump in. Amy. So fascinating. I think the brain is is truly so immensely fascinating, but something I always think about with these types of decisions is how much you were talking about people who are uh, very uh, proactive or very organized in their life, you know, it's because I think, you know, when you teach your brain, you know, that there is consistency in these things, it allows you to have more actual freedom to have space to think of other things. You know, if your brain is filled with chaos of like, I don't know what I'm going to eat today all day long. It, it's really easy then to just focus on that and like not focus on so much else that could be going on in your life, like relationships or work or whatever. Whereas when you have those things that your brain just knows to expect, like it frees you up. Like it, that's why I think with like meditation, like these things that allow you to actually access the capability of your brain are so fascinating. And I think that as much as we have created so much amazing technology and, and amazing things in the last, you know, several hundred years, we've also lost that ability to like allow people to be truly brilliant in their own right, because they, we don't give even children time to really sit with themselves and think as much as we used to. And I, I do think that eventually that, that we're, we'll start to see the repercussions of that in our abilities to kind of problem solve on a level that does not allow us to rely on technology or other things that we've come to rely on so heavily. 
the thing I love about what you just said is when you think of past people, Newton, Einstein, et cetera, uh, they had time. They had nothing but time. They had time to be with their own thoughts. They had time to be within their work in an in in interrupted way. And so there will be more people like that who emerge, who use technologies like this to make their work even better. The rest of us will just become little pedantic slaves to this and we'll never do anything. We'll just go to our graves as ADD little munchkins who never did anything because we couldn't control our impulses to just stop watching TikTok videos for eight hours a day. Um, but you also have to go back to the foundation of, you know, personality types and some of these traits we're describing. They are 100% genetic. I have four kids. Anybody here who has more than one child, you know how unbelievably different your children are from each other. And yet how you can trace exact traits through your entire family tree that, that your kids have because of those genetics. I mean, DNA is passed on. That's that's what DNA does. Uh, and so the people who are organized, like you said, naturally, Amy, and they, they just have their lives together, and they just show that kind of discipline. Yeah, they become great engineers and physicists and even bodybuilders because they can diet to 3% body fat and never even bat an eye. It doesn't even bother them because they're just, they're so aligned with, I don't want to say the monotony, but the routine, the pattern they they get the reward like the stanford marshmallow study like that's just not a bother to them it's 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 their nature other people who struggle with that mightily they're never going to have the advantages that those people have genetically they just don't but they can grind and work against the flow and they can get to a much better place and that's where the meritocracy and the the punitive things versus the rewards it's like, you know, do you really do that to these people? Like, you know, when, when they have such physical genetic advantages or disadvantages, do you treat them as equal? It's 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 going to be a huge change, I think, over the next hundred years. Uh, who else has some thoughts here? Kevin, did you want to jump in with anything? I'm trying not to be too vulnerable and share too many things because I am what you say, Amy, in terms of that organized, efficient, analytical, systems-based, etc. that I was born that way. Although I struggled early on in college, as you all know, that it was still a learned pattern eventually. And it's, you know, that's just how I operate. However, my wife is not that at all. And in the past recent years, we've learned that she actually has a learning disability that affects her executive function thinking. So, you know, what you've been sharing here, Joe, is exactly what she struggles with. And I guess she would be impulsive, therefore, but when the trigger is there, when she is especially tired, um, that's, you know, that triggers and goes down a very predictable and annoying path. Um, of which I can't understand because that's not how I operate. I would prevent that from being the case and do what I can to mitigate that risk to begin with. Um, so it's it's very simple of a seemingly very simple of a fix. You know, be you know, 
try to alleviate that trigger point entirely and be that different person. But I can't imagine how difficult it must be for her and others of the like um, to have that, to not know how to process things when it's already difficult enough for anyone, for that matter, whether you're good or advantage or disadvantage. But to have and be in her position where she's clinically bombarded with shit, patients, all the data, et cetera, doing all the bureaucratic crap, dealing with me and whatever crap, but just the stuff that she's processing and bombarding and still still has the success that she does, which is remarkable in of itself. But um it's just I don't I can't imagine how overwhelming it must be for her to have to fix this more or less. So a, a couple of points that came to mind from Sapolsky's work, um, just like some species, some animals are pair bonding monogamous and some are not. Um, they're just, and, and humans have both of those, the, the vasopressin receptors in our brains in different people, you know, get, you know, show that track. There are some human beings who have a certain uh, receptor site, you know, formation for that vasopressin and some who have a mutation and again with shocking uh predictability you can say well this person is going to be you know somebody who values fidelity and they express that in a lifelong commitment and some people just don't and you say okay well that's still like that's their choice they're being a shitty person they deserve to be divorced and flagellated and this and that well okay great but they also have that gene that says do that like seek novelty for genetic reproductive evolutionary reasons that's programmed in their brain like somebody with a gambling addiction or like somebody as we're describing it's like okay we we don't like that behavior if you and your partner have agreed that that's not right then we need to figure out a way to to make sure that doesn't happen like that doesn't change that they have those genetics and you know so many other things so like you describing a learning disability like imagine you being a, here's an example he gave in the book. Um, let's say you have two runners at a starting line for a race and you give a person a 20 foot head start. Is that fair? Like they're going to get a head start and whoever wins gets a million dollars, but that person gets a head start. Is that fair? Okay. What if it's a marathon? Probably not going to matter. Like if the other person's a better runner, it's just not going to matter. That head start, who cares? Give them a, give them a, you know, a hundred yard head start. So it it depends to the degree and to what we're describing, because we moralistically, you know, attribute certain values to things, weights in terms of, you know, whether it's decent or not, or deserves this kind of punishment or this kind of punishment. And so when it comes down to our health, I think, this this whole movement toward more intuitive eating or non-intentional weight loss where you're focusing on habits and behavior change first and don't worry about being so precise. I think that's a perfectly fine method for people who need that work. As I described earlier, you know, if you're the person who struggles with this, then you may be struggling with it in other areas of your life. Work on that first, and then that'll fix all of the things. But then macronutrient tracking, flexible dieting, learning something about the physiology of food, that's still a good tool. It may complement that kind of work. 
and maybe a person who does the other then will more usefully be able to use these tools, but you still need both. And so, you know, to your your point, I just I just think uh, you, you have to give a lot of compassion to yourself and hopefully non-judgment to other people to say, okay, this obviously isn't easy for me, you know, and, and now we can understand that maybe there's a myriad of genetic traits. Why? So that information may be useful in understanding it, but then we still have to figure out how to get to the point where we are living the life we really want. So great thoughts, guys. Any Anybody else have any questions? Because I know this is not an easy topic by any means. It's causing quite a firestorm uh, in the scientific community. Charles, <laughs> please. Yeah, um, I you know, I think there's some great comments made. And uh, sorry if this background noise, I'm obviously in a public, uh, public place here, but wanted to wanted to jump on in the call. Um, so uh, I, I also, everything you're talking about, I also think of, you know, if you're using sort of the, you know, the marathon and running as a, as a comparison, but just in sort of sports, um, sports in general, you, uh, I think of a person who may have a, a natural gift for something, whether it's, whether it's running, whether it's, uh, you know, shooting a basketball, whatever it is, they may have a natural gift. And then you may have someone that really doesn't have that, that inclination at all. Um, However, you know, you see circumstances where the person with the natural gift or inclination for something, they don't, they don't have the, the grit and the, and the resilience to take that potential and um, do anything with it. And then you have the person who maybe doesn't, isn't as talented, but they have the discipline, they have grit, and, you know, they work on building those skills uh, each and every day. Um, and they're able to, in many cases, exceed the uh, uh, you know, exceed uh, uh, maybe maybe the skill set in some some cases, um, but but at least um, be able to go further than someone with the with the natural talent. And so in my mind, I'm I'm thinking uh, based off of everything you're saying that someone could have uh, could be the person who can not be tempted or not have um, impulses for, for certain things. Uh, and you could have the other person who, um, you know, they, they see a cookie and they, they haven't met a cookie that, a chocolate chip cookie that they, 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 they don't like, um, but they can build up that, that skill set um, to be able to, to resist uh, so, such things and be able to uh, be able to move forward on their, on their goals. So um, I, I just think it's, it's something that, Hopefully, we talk a little bit more about in the further sessions in terms of the, the interplay of, 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 uh, of grit, um, resilience, um, and being able to, to push through um, some of these, uh, lack of a better term, deficits that we have in order to, uh, to reach our goal. Because I think in that in of itself, that, that grit is a, is, can, can also be a, be a skill set um, as, as well that can be uh, developed. That's, that's all I want to uh, uh, so, so, so his his fourth chapter, Charles, is called "Willing Willpower: The Myth of Grit," and his point to that is, if I if I played Michael Jordan in a thousand games of basketball, I mean, how many of those do you think I would win? 
it's well it's, none it, it has its limits yeah obviously it's gonna be zero it's, it's gonna be zero so it, th there, there's no amount of grit or willpower or anything that I could change. And I'm talking even at my best, like I could go practice. I could get a coach. I could, I could plan for this for a year and I'm still not going to beat Michael Jordan in his prime versus my prime. Uh, probably not even with him in his sixties. Um, but can I become a better basketball player with that grit? Can I be happy and satisfied and have this great experience? Of course. Uh, but there again, there is the range of this is determined. Joe is five, seven and a half. Joe doesn't have the same amount of white muscle fiber as, as Michael Jordan and so forth. And so it's just like Joe's not six, six like Michael Jordan. Um, you know, is this over? Like game over. But it doesn't mean that I can't head into that direction as deeply as I want. And, you know, going back to another example of what you're describing, um, I was able to accomplish things I never thought I could do physically in my pro bodybuilding career, you know, going six months without ever having a single chocolate chip cookie that I didn't intend to have without, I mean, just literally to be able to say, I have executed a, a prep period as perfectly as I can. That was my goal in my retirement season. And I did that. Every single season up to that point was a little better than the previous, a little better than the previous in, in every way, but especially with that willpower in the ability to execute. There's another chapter he talks about, like when things get tough, um, like how do you make, how do you do the right thing when it is increasingly difficult with the stress, the lack of sleep, the, this, this, like, how do you learn to do that? And that is a hundred percent an acquired, learned, practice skill through neuroplasticity, but it's still always going to be tough. Like I'm still that guy with that brain and I could muster that kind of outcome for that one six month season because it meant everything to me at that time. Like my entire career as a pro bodybuilder, my career as a coach and a consultant and a business owner who does this if I couldn't execute that myself, I would feel like a total fraud. And so it meant everything to me to do that. Could I do that every day for my entire life? No freaking way. Like it took every about amount of mental energy I had. I didn't have any business growth during that time. All my relationships suffered during that time because all of those fatigable resources had to go toward that one thing. So again, that's that's the boundary of grit and resilience and your your will. Um, sure, you can do amazing things, but it's still within some of those boundaries. So again, perfect, perfect, uh, very thoughtful comment there. Anybody else? Let's scroll over here, see who's on the call. Yeah, I am a, I'm a fan of Sapolsky, obviously, but there are some things that, I would even say, I understand why he's so dogmatic and he doesn't really leave any room for an objection because he just continues to take that one step backward to show, well, you didn't have that decision. Like it's not even your DNA. You didn't, you didn't have any say in how the human genome evolved over a billion years and so forth. And so you think you have free will, 
but that's an illusion because you're making decisions based on the capacity of your brain in this context of your environment, in this context of the human genome. Like all of those factors mean you just, there's not a lot of wiggle room, but where I agree with the philosophers and the behaviorists semantically against pure determinism is within something that he also concedes, which is we, we have that room. We have that room to modify our decisions within those determined boundaries. So I hope that doesn't look as starkly binary as it sounds when you initially propose it, because for us to have any any ability to improve ourselves, to change outcomes, then we do have to execute the will we have within those, those boundaries. So I'll leave you guys there. Uh, fantastic. I apologize. This was a little clunky and weird without me having a, a real just single research article, but uh, hopefully we'll get into some of those now in the next couple of weeks. So you guys have an awesome weekend and I will see you next week.